has a relationship with gender. What's your story? Hello and welcome to Gender Stories with your host, Dr. Alexian Taffy. Hello and welcome to another episode of Gender Story with your host, Dr. Alexian Taffy. Today I am super excited and yes, I know I'm always excited, but I really am to be interviewing the wonderful Sian Lester. Sian is the author of the wonderful book Trans Like Me, which is available worldwide on hardback, paperback, ebook, and uh, audiobook as well now. And Sian is also a wonderful all-around musician, and we will be talking both about music and about their book. So welcome, Sian. I'm so glad to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for, for asking me. This is really cool. So before we started recording, we were chatting about what's kind of going on in our lives, and you said at the moment you are getting ready to hand in your... PhD, and so we got started um, to talk about that a little bit. So why don't we tell our listener what you're working on in terms of your PhD, in, um, uh, which is in musicology, but also in performance, right? So maybe yeah. tell us a little bit more about that. Um, well, as a performer, there's this really odd assumption. Um, I trained as a pianist, and then I switched to a singer. And as a pianist, I think you're kind of expected to be intellectual. That's okay. As a singer... <laughs> you're often assumed to, let's just say not be intellectual, not be curious about what you do. Um, And I am, I'm damn curious. And I got very curious and very angry all the way through undergraduate and master's level that we didn't do any women composers ever, not one. Um, And, uh, you know, that combined with experiencing a lot of misogyny and a lot of transphobia and queerphobia, uh, kind of set a fire underneath me. I went to try and find out about more marginalized composers and found out about this Venetian 17th century composer, Barbara Strozzi, completely fell in love, um, started performing her music, and through that performing, really got to... I'm trying to think about it. Got, got to keep asking questions, I guess. It, it kept those questions alive for me. Mm. Um, and so I started doing a PhD on her, and it's not just performing her music, it's not just researching about her life but it's really asking why is it that she was marginalized? How has that marginalization continued until our our day, so our day to day? And what does that do when you're a marginalized performer performing the works for a marginalized composer? You know, where are these intersections with gender oppression and sort of ideas around genius and appropriateness uh, and who gets to be heard and who's silenced? so it's very exciting. I'm trying to limit it down to 80,000 words in a recording and a concert tour, um, which is hard because I could talk behind leg of a donkey about this. I've already talked um, <laughs> quite a great deal. Um, but yeah, Barbara Strozzi is amazing. And I just love her. So even though I'm hating my own writing at the moment, I, I'm still loving the subject matter. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so there's that face of the PhD there in a while, uh, but um, <laughs> I'm and almost I'm writing a book, so I totally get the feeling of hating your own writing. Tell tell um, tell me a little bit more about my understanding is that Barbara Strozzi was marginalized 
um, very much because of her gender. So tell me a little bit more about what you are finding out um, in your research around her marginalization due to her gender or positioning even due to her gender. I think what's really fascinating for me is that while as a woman composer in the 1600s, her options were limited and limited by her class as well, limited by sort of really individual elements of Venetian society, she still managed to be an incredibly prolific musician, um, highly praised, uh, within a huge geographical reach, which, you know, it's, it's really quite extraordinary. And you see her written about at the time as a sort of, for want of a better word, as a genius. And then you have the 19th century. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you have the 20th century. And this this silence just descends. And then when she's rediscovered, sort of quote unquote, uh, in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, suddenly it shifts. So it's no longer that we're writing about Strozzi the musician, it's Strozzi the woman. Mm. And not just any woman, but a fallen woman. I kid you not, like that's literally a phrase. A recent article about her is, you know, Strozzi is a fallen woman, uh, an immoral woman. Was she a courtesan? Was she a prostitute? Mm. She had children out of wedlock. She wrote about sex. Oh my God. Mm. Did she write her songs to entertain her clients? And it's I mean, it's um, it's a crash course in the way in which sort of marginalized genders, women in, in particular, are sexualized in a way which removes all autonomy, removes any idea that you can be sexual and uh, any concept that all ways in which we are sexualized by society have an economic component to them. You know, it's like all critical thinking goes out the window. Mm-hmm. Suddenly it's just this really basic wrong narrative of Strozzi was a woman women equal sex ergo Strozzi equal sex therefore there's no music anywhere music doesn't count anymore mm-hmm. and and even and maybe even the music is only seen through that lens right well, that, that there is no other way of seeing anything she has done rather than through this lens of her gender and her sexuality yeah and mm-hmm. you know like one of the questions that people keep bringing up is was she a courtesan Again, we don't know. There's no evidence to say that she was, but, you know, maybe she could have been. There might be new evidence. But it would be, was she a courtesan? And if she was, how dare she write religious music? You know, then some people start going, was she a repentant courtesan? Was she a repentant prostitute? And you'd be, oh, my God. (laughs) You know, God forbid that she could have some kind of interiority or that we don't divide women into Madonnas and whores. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's basic, and it's basic, and I really... Uh, misogynistic, demeaning way. Absolutely, because also she was, you know, um, alive at a time where even religious leader, at least I don't know. I was born and brought up in Italy. We learned in history that like popes would have children out of wedlock at the time, you know, and kind of religious leaders, and it doesn't um, disqualify them from the kind of work that we're doing. Um, but again if it's a woman it's like all of a sudden it's like oh no then your religious music no longer is valid in our canon Mm -hmm. yeah and it's so fascinating because her father was a playwright and a poet and he was an illegitimate child uh, and he never married but of course you know he's the bohemian male genius and she's the slutty daughter that couldn't keep her legs together Mm -hmm. and it's it's depressing but but important, I think, and I hope. And mm. I just want people to listen to her music, but beyond that, I really want them to rethink this idea of who gets to be a composer and who doesn't. Mm-hmm. Because I think 
particularly when it's people who you know in some aspects of academic musicology we have moved forward you know we read susan mcclary we think about you know these ideas of gender and genius but in popular music culture and by that i mean like popular classical music culture i think you still have this idea like that a composer is a white cis man who is divinely inspired to create works of sheer pure genius and everyone else is a bit too grubby to get involved um and you know as someone who's a composer themselves like i just i want people to make music i want everyone to make music it's our universal birthright and it's part of being human and it really upsets me that we try and take the humanity out of that Absolutely. And and music is so healing. It's something that's so needed. I know that as a trauma therapist, I'm so aware of how much art and music and singing and moving our bodies is kind of part mm-hmm. of our birthright and part of our individual and collective healing, which we're often kind of deprived of. So I, I love what you're saying about music and, uh, and how important it is uh, to pay attention to who gets to uh, be seen as legitimate when mm-hmm. performing music, right? Um, tell me a little bit more why, you know, why this topic, you know, a PhD is years and years of kind of work, <laughs> as I well know, you know, and it's, it's a lot of focus on a kind of very small element of a large discipline. So why this particular composer, why Barbara, what, what is it about her that really resonated with you? I think probably two elements. I mean, one, um, my singing partner, Sarah Dacey. You know, we, we have an early music group called Ursula's Arrow. We specialize in music by women. Uh, and she did say, well, you're doing all this work anyway. Why aren't you going to get a PhD out of it? And I thought, well, that is a very true point. So, I, you know, I was doing the research. I was doing the new performing editions. And we were, you know, sort of gathering data and all the rest of it. And then I think a second point probably is related still to that idea of legitimacy. And, you know, as a, as a trans person in classical music, you know, some people have been really great. I'm not trying, to, you know, you talk about discrimination and I think some people are then very quick to say, are you saying that everyone hates you? And it's not that everyone hates me, but I have definitely experienced some real career and educational setbacks because of overt and and covert uh, sort of hatred and erasure and, and exclusion. Um, and I definitely have found that the more legitimate, quote unquote, I can make myself seem, the easier it is for me to get by. Um, so I think part of it is maybe a very mercenary desire to have, you know, look, I have a doctorate. You know, you can hate me if you like, but you can't say that I'm worthless at what I do. Um, and I think that is sad. I'm not going to pretend that that, you know, I, again, I don't want anyone to think that they would have to do that. But I think it has been part of my survival strategy to really... It sounds really sad because I love pursuing excellence for its own sake. I really do. But I can't pretend it's not helpful to me to have that as well. It's really helpful. And it it brings me more work than I would have before. And it's work I need and it's protection that I need. So, you know, selfish reasons, I think. I completely understand, and I, I don't think I wouldn't say it's selfish. I, I love what you said about, um, you know, in some way it kind of resonated with what, you know, you're, we were talking about with Barbara Strozzi, is like survival, right? How do you survive in a society or a culture where there is systemic oppression, right? How, you know, for Barbara, how does she survive in a society where there is systemic kind of misogyny at the time where it was maybe unthinkable for her to, like, be a composer and a musician in the way she was, right? 
And when you were talking about the reasons why you are doing your PhD and the credibility that that brings and the legitimacy piece, I really resonated. There was a big piece in kind of doing my PhD. Of course, I loved the subject and I was really passionate. You know, this is, uh, I was studying gender which is and disability, which are both things that I'm really, really passionate about. But I would be lying if I didn't say that there wasn't a piece of being seen as legitimate in an environment that was literally created to delegitimize in certain uh, ways, kind of my point of view or anything that I knew, right? It's that bit of epistemic injustice. So I think it makes sense to me. I don't, I don't think it's selfish. <laughs> I think it really brought home to me, you know, Translate Me came out in the initial UK print run uh, coming up to two years ago. And mm-hmm. it really changed. I mean, the the way I went from, you know, please stop being an angry trans person. We don't want to hear your angry trans person views to please come and give us a lecture about trans rights and we'll pay you. Yeah. Was night and day. And it really, you know, I'm not, again, not in every case, but in many, many cases, suddenly that was, you're not just an angry trans person anymore you have a book people believed in you a publishing company believed in you therefore what you have to say is worthwhile and i think it is bullshit and it does delegitimize so many people but if i'm going to be given a chance to talk because of that at least i want to be talking in a way which i hope is helpful and hopefully starts breaking down that as well absolutely so let's talk about trucks like me a little bit and um Kind of tell the listeners a little bit more about the book, kind of what you want them really to know about the book, uh, if they haven't read the book, why they should read the book, which I think everybody should. It's a really wonderful book. Um, but yeah. I think what I really wanted to do, um, you know, I was just talking about this with my, my agent and uh, she sort of said, you know, well, have you have you written a book about trans things? Got me blogging about trans issues for a long time. Um, I started sort of working as an LGBTQI activist very young as a teenager, um, you know, so this was something I'd been writing about and thinking about and speaking about and standing in the rain with petitions about for a very long time. And I'd always thought, well, I'll write a book about trans experiences or sort of the kind of philosophy which, you know, so many of us, like, experience in a living, breathing way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I always thought it'd be, like, a really obscure academic <laughs> book that nobody would want to read. Um, and then I started blogging, and it got really popular. And my agent said, well, why don't you try and do something which has the academic basis but is fun to read? And I think we kind of took it from there. And I think for a lot of trans writing which is out there, and thankfully this is really starting to change, um, but it was either sort of very hyper-academic mm-hmm. or then there would be an awful lot of pity porn. You know, the, I don't know if you have the same thing worldwide. I'm thinking of who's listening. But, you know, if you go into WH Smith's in the UK, there's like a, a shelf of memoirs and they're literally things like Daddy Sold Me for Cigarettes or... Yeah. You know, like, who has the the most terrible childhood and how can they exploit it the most? And a lot of trans people's books, the ones that were being published certainly by big companies rather than by independent queer presses, were very much that let's give the surgery details, we want before and after photos, you know, can you hear my air quotes on before and after? Mm -hmm. Um, And we said, well, let's not do that. (laughs) And 
let's instead try and do something which is informed from a from a research perspective, but also informed from lived experience, but is having the conversations we want to have on our terms, and we'll make them a series of essays because nonfiction is really good to read on the bus or on the train, and you know I was sort of going backwards and forwards teaching across London and, and sort of going from various different gigs and always having a book on the go and never being able to read more than 15 minutes in the stretch because then you have to get off your bus so I thought well I'll do little 15 minute essays um, so that's what it is, it's a collection of essays and everyone takes on an issue uh, that trans people have to live with whether that's media representation or the erasure of our history or the ways in which people say trans kids can't exist, they're too young to know and, and really trying to bring uh, some actual factual representation into that, but but grounding that in a lived experience of this isn't just an academic debate. This is this is our lives. This is our daily lives. I love that, and it what strikes me as you're talking about the the book is kind of the parallels between the book and the work you are doing for your PhD. Right, this weaving of kind of research, but also lived experience, and what what does that mean to kind of weave the two together? Because like you said, sometimes there is this ex- expectation that things will only be academic or there will only be lived experience. And I know that as an author myself, I really love weaving the two together. Mm-hmm. As kind of, I always been fascinated by things like autoethnography, even when I was an academic, right? How do we bring together all these threads of lived experience and research? And I think that's something that you do really wonderfully in the book. And, and I wonder if you do see this thread both in the book and in your PhD research at the moment. Well, first, thank you. Um, <laughs> second, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, it's pretty obvious to anyone that knows me. I am not a fan of binaries, um, which maybe that sounds like a binary position in and of itself. But I, I really hate this idea that it's one or another and you just think that everything is global and it influences everything else and at what point do you start chopping yourself into pieces like I can't go into a rehearsal and say suddenly I am Cien the musician and Cien the trans person is left behind you know I can't even leave behind Cien the person who didn't get enough sleep and you know needs extra coffee to function this morning because Mm -hmm. otherwise they can't you know, it makes sense of the sight reading. It, it, you just don't work like that as a human being. We are complex systems. And I'm just really not interested at this point in my life of pretending otherwise. And I love what you're saying because I mean, that speaks to kind of every cell of my being. That's kind of my, as you well know, I mean, you've written the introduction to Life is in Binary, which McJohn and I, 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 you know, love that book. It is amazing. <laughs> and, and completely, again, it. It is really funny, and it, you know, I think people, uh, I mean, I, yeah, I get it all the time, and some people will sort of say to me, or like, would you feel like more of a musician or a writer? Like, you have to choose, and you think, dude, <laughs> <laughs> have you met me? <laughs> exactly. So, and actually, that was my question. It's like being in this more kind of liminal or um, acknowledge that we are complex beings, whatever we want to, in whichever way we want to put it in language, how does that kind of manifest in your life? Because 
you're right. That's my experience also that the world wants to keep putting people in boxes, right? You're either this or this. You are an author or you are an academic or you are a therapist or you're a musician, right? All these neat boxes. And now you get to be a trans person and now now you don't, you know, which there's also an element of performativity, like, um, you know, in some ways. So how does it manifest in your life, this kind of knowing that we are complex beings and wanting to bring all of yourself to all aspects of your work? I mean, I think for me, they just all flow so organically into each other that it, it, I mean, for me, writing is primarily a question of rhythm and mouthfeel. So, you know, it it always comes back to a a sensation of the musicality of, of what language is. Um, I'm synesthesiac, I'm a synesthesiac, so it's it's less as I've gotten older, which is really sad. Um, but, you know, it's still there, but it was incredibly vivid when I was younger, so colours and music are very, very closely linked. And that sensation of, like, if you close your eyes and hear music, the way it's a proprioceptive response, so you can feel it, like, in the space around you uh, as, like, solid or, or, like, gaseous forms. You know, all these weird things. You're like, wow, brain. <laughs> really exciting um and i think that again comes through you know language is colors it's shapes it's it's weight you know it's literally can you feel the weight on your tongue um so i mean i I find writing really exciting because it feels like it's another way of mixing musicality with uh, both an intellectual and an emotional process of communication which is awesome and then you know writing music is it's such a pleasure I mean, it, it's such a privilege to be able to, to sit and, and write music, um, even as it makes me want to, you know, throw it all out the window and <laughs> say, I'll never do it again, I'm just going to live in the cupboard. Um, you know, and, and, but in the same way, you know, as a performer, you're always constantly co-creating the music that you're creating. You know, you're, you're working with a composer, you're working with maybe a duet partner, you're working with your audience, you're, you're all in this, in a collective space of creativity. And... Genuinely, it's what gets me up in the morning. I find it, you know, life is short, death is everywhere. <laughs> I'm not trying to be funny, but, you know, yeah. three of us will be diagnosed with cancer. Life is very hard, and yet we have these miracles available to us. And I just want to grab all of them. And, you know, I'm greedy. I feel like I'm very greedy for life. And maybe that's what holds everything together is, you know, I should sleep more and I should maybe do less, but... I'm so greedy for it. I couldn't, you know, greedy bisexual. So I don't care. I'm grabbing it. <laughs> I love that. And, and that's great because there is, you know, so much passion in what you're talking about, both for the writing and the music and the performing. And I, I, I love that. So at the beginning of our conversation, you know, we started talking about Barbara Strozzi and how her gender kind of, um, you know, in some ways positioned her in a particular way, both during her time and now and I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about how kind of how your gender impacts your positionality both as an author and as a musician and maybe kind of what does your gender open up and what does it close down is another way of putting that question I guess I mean I think I find this question really interesting and I have to think about it quite a bit because I think like a lot of people particularly people who occupy, in many respects, a more privileged position, you know, a white position, a middle-class position, I think it can be very easy for me to go, oh, I don't really have a gender, I just have a me, and, you know, 
I, I think it's very easy to fall into that because how I feel feels universal. It's my foundation. You know, how can I feel anything else? Um, and I think something that was really critical for me reading, you know, huge amounts of feminist theory and reading as many trans accounts as I could get my hand on was thinking about the fact that just because I feel neutral does not mean that's a neutral category. So I've really had to think about the ways in which, again, I can go out wearing all black and, you know, a tailored jacket with short hair and brogues and go, I feel really neutral today. And you're like, ah, that's because I'm wearing masculine coded Mm. things. And, you know, while that may get someone calling me a faggot or a freak, I'm still having that sort of more dominant sense of of what gender is so yeah I think it's really difficult in terms of a sense of my own gender I think how that sort of translates to me is trying to hold together how I feel how I feel about my body how I feel about my position in society how I feel about for want of a better word my soul Uh, how I feel about my interactions with people, but also how other people feel about me, what my societal position is, and how that changes so radically depending on the context that I'm in. And I think, you know, all of those disparate elements all come together to to craft a sense of gender. And I I guess for me, that's one of the reasons I really love when people say, what's your gender, saying I'm transgender. Not because, you know... You know, I'm not saying that that you know, male, female, transgender, not the correct way to do things. But at the same point, it's a movable category. It's not a fixed state. Even though I feel pretty fixed and secure in myself, where I am, what part of the world I am, which like which which group of people I'm around, how I'm dressed that day. You know, I joke about it in the book, but literally between getting my hair cut and it growing out in two weeks changes how I'm seen in the world and Mm -hmm. that then impacts on my emotional state it impacts on how I see other people Um, so that's a really long answer to say I don't think I have a simple answer for like what my gender is and how that impacts on me I think I can notice the ways in which I have been discriminated against and marginalized for being gender non-conforming and also the ways in which I love being gender non-conforming I just love it Um, but I really don't love the societal cost um, so I guess I figured my job is to try and change the societal cost as much as I can so that people you know five years down the line ten years down the line 60 years down the line are paying a cost just to be themselves I love the way you're talking about gender because it's so relational and um which is also my experience, right? That it's now so isolated and fixed in time, but there is kind of a fluidity and a relationality to it that um, I think is true for many people, actually, when you scratch beneath the surface, you know. Um, I think that several, you know, many people in the world um, experience their gender in this way, but we haven't quite opened up enough, um, you know, on a linguistic level or cultural level or social level to really embrace that in a way um, uh, that makes sense. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, I think it's why I love the word genderqueer so much Mm -hmm. because it, you know, it's an active term. And I think that's maybe what I feel. It's it's not like 
this one passive thing, even even as I feel like a very grounded person, you know, I think we say terms like gender fluid, and if gender fluid means changing your presentation every day, which it can for some people, that's certainly not sort of how I do it. You know, I just went black. I'm really boring. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in terms of feeling like I'm on a journey constantly, as are all the other people around me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I very much feel that. Um, and then I really love the fact that, you know, certainly with my partner and with a couple of very close friends, it feels like we can drop all of the outside world and kind of have little moments of just being human animals in an enormous expanding universe and go, fuck, <laughs> fuck, what is this? <laughs> and I love that too. Absolutely. Oh, I feel like I could kind of keep going on this conversation forever, but I want to be respectful of your time. And no, so, it's all good. I'm doing my bibliography today, so <laughs> honestly, don't let me talk any longer. I will just talk and talk to avoid. <laughs> no, that's I'm I'm for it, you know. And uh, yes, <laughs> I think our listeners probably would be too, because this is such a great conversation. Um, is there something I haven't asked you about that you were hoping to talk about today? Um, no, I don't think so. I think I could just, I said, Life Isn't Binary is such a beautiful book, and I could just rabbit uh, <laughs> that for a long time. But, you know, honestly, thank you so much for writing it. I mean, I think the thing that really struck with me, again, taking that more like relational and, and global approach, even to the point of talking about the necessity of you know sort of emotions and emotional states that we term as negative and, and sort of the creativity that lies in that and the, the moving away from from dichotomies that sort of sort of have one good and one bad I just I found it really really helpful on a personal level and on a political level so thank you thank you oh I'm getting a little bit emotional I was like oh I'm interviewing you about your work but Yes, I will take that in. I will model what I always say to my clients and just like take it in. <laughs> not fight, not fight the compliment. <laughs> oh well, I is there um, the last thing actually I would like to ask is where can people find out more about your work? Because like I said, I want to be respectful of your time and the listeners' time, but I'm sure that um, you know the listeners are like that's great. Where can I find out more about? Sian's work, where do I order the book? How do I find out more about the music research Sian is doing? Tell, tell us where we can find you. <laughs> you come to my, my website, so Cn Lester, and Lester is L-E-S-T-E-R. It's, it's not the fancy spelling. Uh, so cnlester.com has information on everything else, and uh, on Twitter, half of it is serious, and half of it is really stupid tweets about dogs <laughs> and coffee. So, you know, your tolerance for that may vary. I am on social media. I try not to use it a huge amount. Um, so if you drop me a message on social media, it might take me a little while to get back to you, but you can always contact me via my website. Uh, and, yeah, I'm just, you know, keeping my head down for the moment, but I'm also working on the next book, and there are plans afoot, and, you know, writing writing new songs. Oh, in terms of where you can get the book, you can get the book anywhere. Um I will say as an author, please don't buy pirated books. Um, that's, you know, uh, we work really hard on these things and royalty payments are not very much. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's always appreciated uh, if you could, you know, not not download a pirated copy. Uh, and my music is all available on Spotify and iTunes. 
Wonderful. So music on Spotify and at Tunes and the book kind of everywhere you get your book and always say try to go to your independent bookstore if you have one. But, you know, otherwise there are wonderful online stores from which you can get your book in every version, right? And I think if you do an audible trial, you can get it for free and then cancel your subscription, which I probably shouldn't be saying, but you can do it. You you can do it. Hopefully nobody from Audible is listening to that part, but there you go. But then maybe people will be so digging in, they'll totally give their Audible membership, so it'll be fine. So (laughs) your first first book is Translate Me, and you said you're working on the next book. Can you give the listeners a little preview of what the next book is about? Oh, well, it depends if I ever sees the light of day. So I, I have um, another nonfiction in the works, uh, which hopefully will see the light of day, which I can't say too much about yet, but hopefully we'll be able to say a bit more about before the end of the year. Uh, and then the one which I'm working on when I should be writing my PhD, uh, or rather getting up early to, to do, is a novel uh, with a lot of elements of trans history. Um, and it may never be good enough to show anyone, in which case... That's fine, because I'm kind of writing it for me. Mm. But if it is good enough, then one day people will see it. Oh my God, that sounds amazing. Is, so is it like going to be like an historical novel? Now I'm just intrigued. Yeah, it's... it's I, I find historical novels and autobiography both very interesting insofar as they are completely fictional and yet have an aura of telling the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are things in my own life that I wanted to write about and yet have not wanted to write about with the idea of memoir because it would be creating a fictive version of something which is too precious to me to turn into fiction. And at the same point, I've wanted to write a historical novel about sort of the history of queer people and yet I'm very aware, you know, you can't claim it's just, you know, it's flat up true. It's it's historical ventriloquism at best. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I thought, well, what if I combine both of these things, things which are too precious to write about as they are, but possibly could be written about in a fictional setting, and things which feel true and yet are also fictive, but at the same point can illustrate something true. So I thought, what if I could combine those things? We'll see. <laughs> well, sounds amazing to me. I would totally read that book. So I do very much hope that that book sees the light of the day because I was like, that sounds amazing. And I would definitely want to read it. But again, I think it highlights how you weave those different elements together so well in your work. Um, yeah, I'm just, I'm in awe of how you do that. So I'm really glad that there are going to be more books coming up, hopefully. <laughs> well, fingers crossed. Thank you very much. Well, thank you once again for being interviewed for the podcast. I really appreciate you. And for the listeners, You again, you can find out more about Sien's work at sienlesser.com. You can find out Sien's music on Spotify and iTunes. And the book, Trans Like Me, is already available in hardback, paperback, worldwide, from any um, place that you get your books. And it's also available as an electronic book and as an audiobook from Audible. So thanks so much, Sian, and thank you so much, um, Gender Stories listeners. Thank you for keep listening, and if you want to find out more about gender generally, you know that McDonald and I have got a book, How to Understand Your Gender Out There, and now Life Isn't Binary. And if you would like to support the podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash gender stories. Thank you so much for listening once more.